it's the thing that I've done in my life that I don't know anyone else who's done the same thing. <laughs> but I was also able to test my limits physically, mentally and psychologically almost on a daily basis. I was held responsible for the completion of an unprecedented task as well as for the safety of the men working with me. Hello, my name is Andrew Gary and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I speak with Les Denham on his new book, Blizzards and Broken Grousers, A Year of Antarctic Glaciology. Detailing one year of Antarctic field operations in 1970, this book depicts the pioneering spirit of geophysics in the time when field operations spanned the globe. Moreover, the data collected during this year now underpin models of ice behavior used to assess climate change. This book provides a detailed account of the author's Antarctic experience in a time before GPS, satellite communications, internet, and even links to Antarctica by air. In this conversation, Les shares the inspiration behind the book, his most memorable field trip in Antarctica, and how the technology they utilized in 1970 can help the geophysicists of today. This episode is sponsored by CGG. As we look to opportunities and face the challenges of the new year, CGG's resolution is to play a key role in solving the complex natural resource, environmental, and infrastructure challenges around the globe. Bringing 90 years of earth science expertise and innovation, CGG is working with its clients to understand, monitor, and manage impacts on the environment. With collaboration and commitment, we can all realize a more sustainable future for people and our planet. Discover how CGG can help you see things differently. For Les's biography and links to purchase the book, visit seg.org slash podcast. Now for our conversation. I'm very excited, Les, to, to highlight your book that, that just came out from SEG. And, you know, immediately the title of the book kind of grabbed me. So what was the inspiration for the title of this book, Blizzards and Broken Grousers? Well, the original title was uh, pretty much what the subtitle is now, A Year of Antarctic Glaciology. But our objective in 1970 was to complete about 1,600 kilometres of traversing uh, on the ice cap. Some of the limitations we had, we could not work with less than about 500 metres visibility. And poor visibility, mainly due to blizzards, stopped us from working, depending on which field trip, anything to, from 50% to 80% of our time in the field. That's half our time to 80% of our time we spent just sitting still waiting for the weather to clear, hence the blizzards. The mechanical problems with our vehicles was the other major limitation we had, and by far the worst mechanical problem was grouses on the track of one of the nodules, which kept breaking. Uh, do you know what a grouser is? I do not know what a grouser is. A grouser on a tracked vehicle, a grouser is the device which gives the track a grip on the surface it, that it's working on. 
the Nodwall track vehicles that were our main transport have tracks which consist of a rubber belt or actually two rubber belts parallel to each other connected by steel bars about every about six inches apart which grip the ice or snow or whatever you're driving over and they break particularly in very cold weather they break so that's that's how the uh, the name (laughs) came up (laughs) That, that kind of brings a question to mind you know when you're working there do you get a sense when you're spending that year in the field that you are part of a much larger research group you know the people that come before you and the people that come after you do you really feel like you're just making making your contribution to this year of time in this space that you're in well we we certainly yeah, understand that in the long term in the short term you concentrate on getting done what needs to be done right now today or this week or before we run out of supplies or uh, some things were un- unanticipated for example where the first time we started to do extensive field work uh, field traverses on the east side of of law dome the snow was a lot softer than anticipated and one of the results of that was that our fuel consumption was much higher yeah i guess when uh, the Conditions are so extreme and you're just almost trying to survive day to day, thinking uh, thinking in the past and long term, it could be very dangerous. Uh, yeah, I want to dive in a little bit in, into the book specifically. And you, you kind of structure the book where you dedicate a chapter to field trips during each of the different seasons of, of the year. Which of these field trips were you most excited to explore again to write about in, in today? I think it would be the first field trip we went on, which was the uh, the autumn field trip. We uh, got away as soon as possible after arriving at Casey Station for the year. We had a, a lot more work to do to get ready for that first field trip than we expected. So we were later getting started, but we did get out and we immediately went to the furthest part of Law Dome from Casey Station. Casey is on the uh, sort of middle of the western side of Law Dome where the sea meets the the ice cap. And we immediately started working from near the centre of Law Dome and working to the southeast from there. We got as far as the Totten Glacier and actually uh, went onto the edge of the Totten Glacier in the southeast. And it was really exciting, I suppose, to to be able to look across this massive glacier, which we had no way of really measuring the width of it, but we could see the main Antarctic ice cap in the distance, probably 20 kilometres or so away on the other side of this plain of uh, broken up ice, uh, huge crevasses that we could see. It's something that no one else had ever seen from a ground level. The Totten Glacier had been seen on aerial photographs before then, before we went there. That's how it was known that it was there. But we were the first people 
to ever actually set foot on it and probably the last people to ever set foot on it so far anyway. Uh, as far as I've been able to find out, no one has ever been back there. You know, you were on the front lines of climate change decades, really before it was more common knowledge, let's say. You know, when you're out there, when you were out there acquiring data and, and performing this field work every day, did you have a sense at the time how valuable that it would be in informing the world's understanding of climate change? Well, we certainly knew that it was important. Let me go a bit back a bit further on climate change. Uh, the first time I heard of a concept of man-made climate change was in ninth grade science in high school. And at that time, the feeling among the science teaching staff or those who put together the science curriculum in New South Wales at that time was that all the carbon dioxide that we were putting into the atmosphere should be causing a change in climate. But we hadn't seen any change. So we're, what's happening? <laughs> so in 1970, uh, which is, I suppose, 15 years later, the question is still, we, we can measure things much more precisely now, but have uh, are we seeing any change in the amount of ice? And at that point, within the accuracy of measurements, the size of the Antarctic ice cap had not changed. Now, measurements today in the shape of the, uh, the ice cap are far more precise than, you know, than they were in those days. The Antarctic ice cap is losing, yeah, at the moment, direct satellite measurements show that Antarctica is losing about 118 billion tonnes of ice per year. That's a lot less than Greenland is lo losing, but it's still a pretty substantial amount of water that is melting. Well, not it's not only melting, some of, of it is evaporating. But uh, forecasts of how this amount will change in the future depend on predicting the ice dynamics. You know, I'm curious, in, in a long career, why did, a, why did your year in the Antarctic stand out to you, you know, especially enough to go and write a book about it? Well, I think it's, it's the thing that I've done in my life that I don't know anyone else who's done the same thing. Mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I was also able to test my limits physically, mentally, and psychologically almost on a daily basis. I was held responsible for the completion of an unprecedented task as well as for the safety of the men working with me. You know, all these field trips that I went on I was the person in charge. I was the one who got the credit when it worked and got the blame when it wasn't worked. There's other places I've worked. There have been challenges and uh, none, none of the other ones, the other uh, difficult positions or conditions I've been in 
have lasted so long and none of them have had the same lack of a plan B that we had in Antarctica. There's one occasion on that autumn trip when we ran out of spare parts, spare grouses for the, uh, for the old Nordwall and we asked for a resupply trip to meet us at the top of Law Dome with spare parts. Now, there were only four field-worthy vehicles at Casey that year, and we had three of them with us, and the one other one uh, was going to come out, come to Law Dome and meet us there, and we'd uh, get the spare parts from them and then go back. And we got a radio call from them from the relief party to say that they'd reached the law dome but uh, they had a flat battery their battery charger would not work and they needed help and we were the only people who could possibly help them so were at the time the field party had uh, had two of us at our field base where the um Caterpillar tractor and the two sled-mounted accommodations and the other two nodwalls were traversing about 15 to 20 kilometres away. So I had them come straight back to where we were immediately and as soon as they got there, I left with two men and the two nodwalls to go to the dome at night and steering by the stars to get there and we got there and rescued them and headed back and I think it was four days it took us to get back to the other two we'd left by themselves with the D4. Yeah time must take on a such a unique feel. You know I'm I'm kind of also curious you know given Given how much field work, it, you know, has kind of changed and, and specifically even in Antarctica has probably changed since you were there. What do you hope the readers in 2021 take away from your book? Well, the work we did in 1970 produced data which is still valid and forms part of the under, underpinnings of today's understanding of the Earth's climate. Just a few weeks ago, Dave Bromwich, who was the youngest man on our 1970 expedition to Casey and who is currently a professor at Ohio State in Columbus, asked me about some of the data I collected in 1970 which might help a current study on precipitation on the east side of Law Dome. And we can still do scientific work which does not cost ridiculous amounts of money. It won't be the same as what we did in 1970, for example, satellites measure ice topography more accurately and more cheaply than we measured it. Today's Antarctic work takes environmental protection to an extreme length, but it takes a massive logistic effort to support today's Antarctic work. Well, maybe maybe people reading your book can get a get a sense of of what was happening and and the work you were doing, and maybe they can apply some of those techniques and and things you were doing, and maybe give it a new eye in in twenty twenty one, and 
maybe think of, of ways we can modify the field work in, in ways that maybe you were doing even better back in 2021. You know, I, I, you know, is, you know, thank you for sharing about your book and, and your field work during this year. Is there anything else about the book that you would like the, the audience to know before we, we leave here? Particularly talking about uh, new and old technology, we worked in 1970. The newest technology we had was from about 1968. The ice radar we were using, which for measuring ice thickness, was developed during the 1960s at the uh, Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge, England. That was the newest thing we had. But another essential bit of equipment we used, which SEG books manager insisted that I put in a special section on, was the Astro Compass. We used Astro Compasses instead of magnetic compasses because we're too close to the South Magnetic Pole for magnetic compasses to be worth a darn. So we used Astro Compasses. These were invented... The ones we used were developed for use principally by armoured units in the western desert of Egypt and across through uh, Libya and Algeria during the Second World War. So in 1970, this was a technology that was about 25 years old and it was still the best thing available for us to use in 1970. And that's, that's so in a lot of ways. Uh, another example I can think of in 2010, an Australian teenager decided to sail un- non-stop around the world, uh, Jessica Watson. The boat she picked to do it in was built 25 years earlier from a design which was more than 40 years old. An American teenager, Abby Sunderland, decided to do the same thing at the same time using a specially designed boat built uh, in 2001 specifically for single-handed sailing in the Southern Ocean, which is the worst place in the world to sail. And Jessica Watson completed her voyage without major incident Abby Sunderland had to be rescued after she was dismasted uh, in the Southern Ocean. So old old and proven technology is sometimes better than the latest technology. That is, I think, a really nice place to leave it there, Les. I appreciate your time and and taking the time to write this book and sharing it with with the world. And I hope you enjoy, uh, have a great start to your new 2021. And the same to you, and thank you for your interest in the book, and I hope it helps sell lots of copies. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. 
Go to the website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all the episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bacomjian, Jennifer Crockett, Ali McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.